very warm welcome to you all to this edition of In a Nutshell. I'm William Powell, the Editor-in-Chief of Natural Gas World, and I'm delighted to be able to introduce you today to Marcel Kramer, the President of the Delta Energy Institute, a business school in the Netherlands, an active member of the IGU, and a member of many other supervisory and uh, advisory boards of companies. And he's a very well-known expert in all things. Well, I first met him in gas, as it happens, but he's um, but he's in, in, at Gazuni. So, Marcel, thank you for joining us. And I would like to kick off, if I may, by asking you about the um, gas and the Netherlands, because as you as you know, it was gas that basically turned the Netherlands Netherlands into the country it is today in terms of the economy and the energy supply. Yes. Well, uh, first, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks to Natural Gas Work. Uh, good to see you, and uh, hopefully, uh, many uh, around the world from your subscribers will find this interesting. Uh, we're, um, you know, in the Netherlands in a rather special position that has to do with the major gas field that was found at the end of the 1950s the Groningen field that is uh, a familiar name to many in the industry. Uh, and that gas find resulted in uh, the Netherlands becoming uh, a major exporter to uh, uh, many countries in, uh, in Western Europe, but also uh, in the national economy, uh, in fact, in many different uh, pillars of the national economy and in households, uh, natural gas has become uh, a key uh, part of the energy supply. It's very important um, in terms of uh, you know moving away from an industry which was still dominated by coal, and people in the UK will recognize what that means. Um, and uh, really, also very important. Uh, and this is something not to be overlooked. Uh, to the national budget, uh, to the amount of money that were available for social development, for infrastructure development. And even though there's always been a debate about how that money should be spent, we have not quite followed the Norwegian road, if you know what I mean, in terms of uh, you know saving all that money for uh, future generations. But uh, we've invested most of it uh, in uh, you know aspects, in projects, that uh, our government and I think most of the population felt would be giving us uh, rather immediate uh, benefits. Um, and that amount is considerable. I saw yet just yesterday another uh, estimate of, of the number of uh, euros that uh, gas has generated uh, for the Dutch society, uh, 400 and something billion euros which for a relatively small country like the Netherlands is, of course, a very significant amount of money. Um, so uh, I would think that for many decades, uh, the Netherlands in general were quite happy with natural gas. Uh, households were happy, and this has something to do also with public acceptance of change. Households were happy with moving coal out of the house and bringing clean and easy to handle uh, natural gas into the house for cooking, for heating, etc. And almost 100% of homes in the Netherlands are still today uh, connected to the natural gas grid, but importantly, also in industry, natural gas has been uh, growing in importance 
in the 60s, 70s and beyond as a feedstock and, and uh, for heating purposes. And then, of course, uh, that, that wealth from natural gas, that position in terms of the resource base, certainly uh, had an influence in terms of the economic status and the, I wouldn't call it necessarily negotiating power, but the relative importance of a country which, uh, of course, in, in many other respects, was relatively small within Europe and certainly within the world, even though we are a very densely populated nation with a sure. lot of economic activity. And I think we're, uh, you know, there's a general realization that that gas has brought us a lot of good, but then we enter a new phase. Um, and that phase uh, was uh, partly triggered by the debate around sustainability uh, and by the idea, particularly, I would think, over the past 10 to 15 years, the roots go back further, um, the idea that we, we need uh, to deal in a more sustainable way with our energy supplies, we need some form of transition or change. And uh, in the background, there was also the realization, uh, we might come back to that later, to, to clean air aspects, uh, the benefits that gas can bring in terms of particle emissions. So uh, that was one driver of the uh, the platform for the energy transition tool. But there were others, and they were perhaps even more pressing. In particular, uh, the um, the significant problem with uh, earthquakes, although relatively small earthquakes by in in scientific or technical terms. Um, but many uh, smaller earthquakes or tremors um, in the area where the Groningen uh, gas was produced. This affected many, many households. Um, and uh, even though uh, there was a system in place to compensate uh, people for any damage, uh, it became politically uh, at least clear that uh, that damage compensation coming directly and being dealt with directly by the producers of the gas, uh, the company that was operating the Groningen field, in which Shell and Exxon uh, play a significant role, but Shell is the operator. Uh, you know, there there was a sensitive political issue, and uh, the combination of that sustainability drive, if you want, even though it was still, I think in popular terms, relatively modest, you could say, compared to today. Uh, and the major issues around damage to many, many uh, homes and buildings uh, under the under the Groningen, uh, or on top of the Groningen gas field, uh, brought about the realization that we have to uh, really tackle that problem on all fronts. Um, and thereby gas became from, you know, something that maybe not everybody found wonderful, but it was generally accepted and supported and there weren't too many issues around it. It became a problem case. And the problem case, I should add, was to some extent also affected or exacerbated by an image that here and there was created that uh, we, uh, 
that the dependence on imports, but technically dependence on uh, on uh, Russian gas uh, exports uh, might at some point in the future pose a problem. Now, that's a debate in itself. I want to park that, but I think in the background, and given the deteriorating, unfortunately, deteriorating political relationships between uh, the Netherlands or between Europe and, and Russia, and we know the stories behind that, um, that, that also didn't help. But I think Groningen was the key issue. Sustainability uh, was certainly also uh, coming up as an important idea. No, the so there you are. Yeah. Good luck with your Thank public relations in that atmosphere. Thank you very much. We thrive on debate. <laughs> I was right. also um, thinking that the Netherlands differs from other countries like, for example, the UK and the US. We are very adversarial politically, whereas you are much more consensus driven in your decision making processes uh, at the government level. And I was wondering how that fits in with driving through policies. Um, this is a very bold step you're making, the move towards the energy transition, rejecting gas or rejecting more gas than uh, other countries might. But you have to do it. It's a very complicated engineering uh, set of skills you need to bring in. Um, a lot of infrastructure has to be built. Uh, how does that work in, in, in your structure with government? Well, um, you know, you're right in the sense that we are one of those countries where uh, you deal uh, typically with governments that uh, are not one-party governments, that you need to build a coalition between different parties in order to get at least a majority in parliament. Uh, we have uh, at times perhaps felt that as an obstacle <laughs> to, to progress, but uh, because things take time and it, it it's not only at the parliamentary level, but I think it goes beyond that there's a sense that you know, we need to have a broad discussion about something which, after all, is a major systems change. It's not mm -hmm. tweaking the technology a bit here and there. It's not like building a road or or even uh, a better highway, uh, highway or railroad system. Um, it's about uh, really dealing differently with energy uh, supply and with energy consumption, which uh, I think in you know, quite literally comes close to home for most people. Uh, and there's a clear realization that there's a bill attached to this transition. There's maybe not always a clear re realization that it is not a revolution, but a transition, uh, unless we're in for some major surprises on the technology front in the near future. This is going to take decades. So I think I'd like to be positive as well about the impact of having a consensus that uh, that goes beyond the 50% vote, if you know what I mean. I think in this society, yeah, and, and you know, in this society, I think that that tends to work reasonably well, although yeah. it takes time and, you know, we love to debate all these things and we love to complain. Uh, but in the end, I think it's a better base. And the other thing is, it, you know, you want to minimize stop and go situations. Mm. You want to minimize uh, the number of situations. So there can be exceptional developments where you have to really make it make a serious change to your longer term plan. But you want to minimize that because it takes the steam. If you want to use that energy term, it takes the steam out of the transition. It could very well. Uh, and, yeah. and so you 
in that coalition government, there is uh, a better, I think in many cases, a better basis uh, for a long-term change. But uh, it's not going quickly. Now, in, in, in Netherlands also, the state owns both the gas and the, the power networks. Could this be uh, a conflict of interest at some point down the line? Or do you think it is, in fact, a, a virtue because it means that the molecules and the electrons can be more, if you like, comprehensively and holistically directed across the country? Well, there are many types of governments and there are many types of companies. And when governments are shareholders of companies, you can see the number of variables that can emerge. And we see that happening around the world. Um, I, I think in the Dutch case, um, it was felt that energy infrastructure was so crucial to the economy and to everyday life that it was justified that the state uh, you know, had a significant influence over important decisions that those companies have to take or important decisions that they will be part of the implementation of in terms of a government plan. Um, so I think that realization is there. Then there's always the question, you know, do you need to be 100% shareholder or not? I will go into that now. We see many different models uh, around Europe and there are quite a few that are successful as fully state-owned and there are quite a few that are very successful, maybe because they're not 100% state-owned. Some, in fact, uh, have a situation where it's either entirely private or where the state has what you could call a golden share but uh, is really more at a distance. Then it also depends on how the government deals with that shareholding. Um, you know, my, my experience is that there is, uh, there's a school that says, well, you know, you're a shareholder at a distance, you're focusing um, on a day-to-day -day basis, really on, you know, sound management, a reasonable dividend to the state, to the society, if you want, uh, and, and proper governance. And that's where it stops. And there are other governments, and this depends a little bit also, sometimes quite a bit on the political situation, the political color of the government, uh, where, where, you know, ministries, be there ministries of energy, of economics, or of finance, uh, feel that they should be much more actively involved, active shareholders. And, uh, well, frankly, I think that tends to be a more challenging path for the company uh, sometimes and also also for the government itself. But it's a choice you can, you can make on a political basis. Um, if the consensus that we just talked about, and I'm not meaning 100% because we'll never get it, but if there's a, a clear majority of the population and of the parliament that say this is the route we go, I don't. I, I then I can see uh, that the government ownership, 100% or not, uh, can be particularly helpful. I can also see it in the aspect of stimulating, supporting uh, bilateral activity uh, at a high political level. Uh, stimulating, supporting cooperation between countries, uh, an important point that maybe we touch upon later. Um, and, and 
the feeling among the population that we're all in this together, rather than there is some private company who's trying to push an agenda. So, you know, I, I think uh, there's no firm yes or no answer on this, but on balance, I think uh, mm-hmm. certainly government involvement in the Dutch case is positive. Um, it may not be 100% essential, but it's, it, it is by and large helpful. And in our setting, uh, I think in the transition, things would get more complicated if these companies mm. were entirely privately held, because after all, they deal with funds from the entire population. Sure, sure. The Netherlands uh, is made up of a number of provinces, very much like the European Union is made up of states. Does this patchwork of uh, interests and so on um, threaten the economies of scale, which the energy transition will need, do you think? And yeah, to what extent, to what extent does a Dutch rebel- yeah. And also, I'd like to ask, what, you know, to what extent does a Dutch or a Belgian or a French energy policy make sense in a so-called single energy market? Well, I live in the great city of Amsterdam, and even the city of Amsterdam has a very active program and spending quite a bit of love, quite a bit of money on on projects related to the energy transition, and has developed as many other uh, uh, cities in the country and and regions uh, their own plan for the energy transition. And they're already at that level. Of course, you run into the question of well. You know, it may be fine to have some local projects that should be stimulated and welcomed uh, if they're if they're productive and effective. Uh, but of course, for the kind of change we're talking about, that is not enough. And the cooperation across borders, whether they are provincial borders, state borders. Uh, or national borders will be absolutely essential. We're seeing progress in that respect. I think, uh, you know, recently hydrogen is an example. Uh, you know, cooperation across borders is is improving. There are organizations such as Hydrogen Europe who are doing, you know, very good work on 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 thinking about and stimulating uh, cooperation between their members. The same has been true already for years, but more based also on on, on mandated European policies uh, in the gas infrastructure field. So, you know, I, I think it's coming and um, I'm, I'm hopeful that there will be more of it, um, particularly in, in the sort of bilateral sense when it comes to concrete steps. Um, I think the industry needs more or perhaps larger scale pilot projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also important in terms of, of financing. Um, I don't want to belittle the startups. I think we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of startups across Europe who are focusing on the energy transition. I'm actually very hopeful that uh, out of that will come a lot of good. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you do need to scale. Um, in terms of you know where can it be applied, hydrogen again is one example. Uh, you do need to scale for the transformation of infrastructure, um, and and to bring, particularly to bring costs down. Um, no. So yes, it should be stimulated, and we we have a tendency here and there to be a bit navel gazing, as we call it. 
uh, or or say, well, that wasn't invented here. Um, so there, there's work to do in that. But I'm optimistic. I think the realization is growing. Now, you, you, you mentioned hydrogen uh, just then, and the energy transition is all about uh, that and decarbonizing in general. Um, this, this will be the first time that a, a more expensive and less versatile fuel is being chosen over the incumbent fuel. And I'm wondering what sort of education do the people have about this and how they can make informed decisions? Because they see hydrogen and they may not realize the implications of it all in terms of the cost, the complexity and so on. Yeah, well, you know, in general, I think the issue about, uh, you know, public understanding about energy to begin with. Uh, mm. you know, I remember they once asked the CEO of Exxon Mobil, um, you know, what what is one of the biggest, what are the biggest challenges? And he listed what he called uh, energy illiteracy mm. <laughs> as, as a major issue for his company. Um, now, it's up to the industry to a large extent. It's up to all stakeholders in the energy transition to work on that. Work is being done. We're doing a lot of it at the Energy Delta Institute. And, and it's good to see we're getting a great response. We're getting, you know, actually, you know, over the course of a year, thousands of people tuning in to, to interesting programs, events and webinars about, uh, about the transition, what it is, what it isn't, what it may cost, what the challenges are but also about you know, the drive and optimism that we all need to make this happen. So there's a lot happening there, but I think at the, at the typical uh, level of people who are not already involved in the industry and in the transition, actively involved, professionally involved, there's still a lot of work to be done. And uh, you know, that, that has to do with, with being honest, explaining, um gaining trust uh people get a lot of information where we're all you know getting and this program's part of it uh we're getting a lot thrown at us and uh i think we need to work more um maybe also as an industry with uh with schools uh we maybe need some new initiatives there we you know, there's one side is the executive education, but this is about broad societal support. And I think that's very important. Think, you know, we have to be honest about costs. We have to be honest about timing. We have, we, we need the best communication experts also uh, yeah. to get the messages across because we tend to still, you know, and in some way we're feeling forced to do that. Uh, you know, use a, a technocratic approach in the explanations. I do it, um, you know, we do it subconsciously. And can we get away from that and not be overly simplistic? I think, I think that's a challenge. Yeah, I think it is a big challenge because a lot of the media and a lot of the conversation is about fossil fuels being on the way out. Uh, they're being nasty, dangerous, and so on. But there's no real coverage given to the problems we get with the uh, decarbonisation in you know, electric batteries. Yeah. You know, they catch they catch fire at the, you know, the very least. There are all sorts of problems with those. Um, renewables getting cheaper, but no one considers that the, that they are cheap partly because they don't bear the costs of uh, intermittency. That's borne by gas and power plants from nuclear. 
and I think there's a very big, you know, public, you know, awareness program needs to be carried out to inform people of the need for baseload and uh, variable uh, power generation, which is why renewables are so cheap. It is, if you like, and looking at one side of the equation. And how would you address that? Do you think? I mean, how do you educate people in that in, in, to to, uh, to realize the complexity of the power systems? Well, I think. Um... There's, there's definitely, as we just said, there's work to be done on the educational side. Um, I think uh, those who have uh, the ear of the young have the uh, have the future. Um, but also the the average households, uh, you know, will will need uh, more uh, balanced information and and that has a lot to do of course with what politicians want to talk about um, you know you're trying to drive a transition okay how much time do you give to these challenges rather than to the great opportunity that lays out there in the future and how do you ensure that you know you stimulate people to do what has the most impact. And that's a balancing act because we're gonna need a lot of different steps to get through this mm. transition successfully over a couple of decades. And there's room for different activity. There's room for heat pumps, assuming they work well. Um, there is room for natural gas. There is definitely room for solar, even though in our part of the world, and if I look out of the window today, it's true again, it's not all that productive. I think we're we having a thousand productive hours, whereas, you know, I think a lot of people think we have a lot more than that, particularly if we had a good year and with lots of sunshine, yeah. uh, the intermittency issue. But there is, there's room for all those things. There's room for, uh, certainly when you look at the households over time, there's probably room for an addition of hydrogen uh, to the fuel mix. And, you know, it may be 10%, it may be 15%, it may be more. And for some sectors of the economy, it may be a lot more. Um, but I think the, the challenge that we have is that there is uh, a growth overstatement or an assumption that already and, and you know the survey showed us uh, that already wind and solar provide half or more of our energy needs. And we know in the Netherlands that we're far away from that. And in fact, on the European scale, but this had to do, has a lot to do with our natural gas situation. We're we're pretty far down, pretty far down on the list. You know, um, gas was so, half our supply yesterday. I think. Yeah, and, 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 you know, this is the reality. But, you know, let's also look at the other reality. Um, this is a country where uh, we probably uh, have more deaths from uh, air pollution, from, from uh, particulates, yeah. uh, than, than from COVID. Now, you know, I'm yeah. not saying that these are comparable entities. Uh, unfortunately, 
the COVID situation is dramatic and uh, needs to be tackled uh, vigorously and so on and so forth. And it impacts daily life of many people and leads to a lot of tragedy. But on the energy side, on the clean air side, there's a lot to be gained. Uh, at least for the foreseeable future by ensuring that uh, in Europe, because, you know, uh, Polish coal pollution is not a, just a Polish issue. No, what, yes, we emit in, in, what we emit in the Netherlands is not just yeah. a Dutch issue. Of so course, of course. there's a lot to be gained uh, there when we can and when it's affordable and practical from uh, maintaining adequate gas supply, yeah. So what do you think of the big low-hanging fruit, if you like, which you, which you, if you had the power to do so, could grasp if you were to pursue a just and affordable transition? Do any, any obvious things spring to mind? Well, you know, the, the first thing is this, uh, let's, let's try to get away from one thing solves everything. We're going yeah. to need a different mix between elect and you know the realization that that is the case after you know quite a lot of years and quite a lot of money being spent already yeah. on projects, experiments, and ideas. Uh, the realization that we need that mix is is growing and and is increasingly being acknowledged. Of course, there are always people who will go for the more radical solutions and they prefer to for them to take place tomorrow um but you know that that mix of perhaps relatively modest steps over a period of you know five to ten years and then see how things develop and what holds the big mm -hmm. promise that's the first thing the other one is you know can we get to a point where things that are most effective also get the, the, the best funding? Um, mm. It's not happening now, and the history is not very good. I mean, we have a history of subsidizing uh, things. There's certainly been quite a few cases where, you know, when you look back, you say, well, either, you know, that it wasn't very effective or, um, you know, it led to you know, a profit level, which was, was you could almost call it inappropriate, <laughs> or uh, the money went to the wrong party. You know, there's a lot happening. It's very difficult, the subsidy policy, uh, yeah. but we are going to need them. And can we, can we focus, particularly when maybe what is looming now is considerable economic difficulty, uh, partly linked to COVID, and we're going to have to pay all these bills. Uh, yeah, as it, a society, it, it, you know, it, it does. Uh, yeah. Then, then you need to to say, okay, uh, dear friends, uh, we'll stick to our guns. Hopefully, we all have enough money. But really, what's important here is, um, you know, making sure that we have impact. And that's not always popular because people will feel that the things they were being promised earlier on are no longer there. Uh, that's that's a difficult one. But be you know the honesty about cost and timing uh, to me is extremely important. And one reason why I think that uh, and we're not a unique in this, but why I think that our prime minister has has uh, 
uh, a lot of public support, even though you know it's very challenging these days uh, because of what's happening on the COVID front, is that on that front we've seen you know an interesting and, and encouraging mix of of you know straightforward um, explanation mm-hmm. and consistency. And I think uh, on the energy side, and again, I know there are significant differences there, uh, but on the energy side, you know, the, the, the messages are fragmented. And, um, and I think it would be great, even though we need cooperation between all kinds of government departments, that will always be the case to implement these measures. Um, I'd, I'd like to see a, you know more prime ministerial messages on this. Uh, so maybe maybe when he hears this, he'll pick it up. We'll see. Well, maybe, I think on the energy transition, yeah. that's a big thing. And uh, yeah. so far, uh, with all respect to the ministers who are making an effort, um, it's a bit it's a bit too fragmented. Now, our own prime minister only yesterday rolled out his own plans for a, a reboot of Britain's economy with uh, industrial sectors developing cars and carbon capture and storage and heat pumps and yeah, it'll cost a lot of money, but it caught, I think, the public mood until people said, hang on, this money's been promised before in one form or another, and actually there's very little of substance in it. Anyway, I think that's, I think we have learned that politicians do say what's expedient very often without thinking too much about what the successors will have to worry about. So on that note, I think, Marcel, we should maybe call it Call it a day. It's been extremely useful and helpful and enjoyable talking to you and hearing your views. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that the Energy Delta Institute is uh, addressing these problems, particularly of education, and explaining to people this isn't going to be easy. We will make sacrifices, and it's going to be a, a slog. But if it all pull together, then maybe we'll uh, achieve some of what we hope for, if not all of it. So, on behalf I'm, of Natural Gas World, good. I'm so, on behalf of that, yeah. I think we, I think we'll be in for some unexpected uh, breakthroughs over the next decade or two. Uh, yeah. It's almost, almost a given, you know, with all the with all the efforts around the world, uh, yeah. small and large, it's almost a yeah. given that uh, yeah. I think there will be progress and that costs will come down. And uh, for now, my recommendation is let's focus a bit more on, on insulating our homes and buildings. Uh, that's, that's the best bank in the, yeah. in the near term. Okay. Right. Well, on behalf of Natural Gas World, Marcel, thank you very, very much for your time and expertise. My Good pleasure. Day to you. Thank you for the opportunity. Bye-bye. And thank you at home for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.